Hey everybody, just so you know, we had a big audio technical issue this week, and so the episode doesn't come up to our standard that we generally have, but please try to enjoy anyway. We've done the best to make it sound as good as possible. Uh, hello, this is Guillermo del Toro, and you're listening to Out Now Podcast. Hello. Now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is... Well, he's out. He's just too scared. Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. We cover some various movie topics, jump into a mostly spoiler-free review, then jump back to other movie, movie topics. This is episode 356, 356, and this week we're talking Us, the new feature from director Jordan Peele. And uh, joining us tonight to talk Us, we have, from Cal's Dave Fullerton, currently tethered to his desk, is Professor Mike Dillon. What? is happening from the hawkeye state back from a rabbit stew feast it's jonathan van dyke hey, hey. and producer of be more chill stocking up on red jumpsuits it's maxwell hadded good afternoon friends how are the three of you doing this evening this morning this day today lazy sunday there you go i don't plan on getting out of bed for a while <clears throat> hey aaron have you um have you seen a movie called Alita Battle Angel? Spend two and a half hours discussing it with me? I think we did that already. <laughs> oh, I was there. <laughs> well, yeah, no, good to have you back. Good to have all of you back. Yeah, no, I think we're, this, this, I'm excited to talk about this movie. There's a lot to go over, I think. And, um, yeah, we got plenty plenty going on, so let's get to some show notes first up. Uh, iTunes reads the ratings, you get those. Helps out, helps out our show, helps other people find our show. If you want to log on to iTunes, search for Out Now with Aaron and Abe. You can do just that. You can give us a rating and review, and you can see all of the episodes that we have available. We have lots and lots of episodes, including our brand new commentary track for The Matrix. Uh, we talked all about The Matrix, the first Matrix from 99, in honor of its 20th anniversary that's coming up in about a week. And uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun to record. So that's up there on iTunes, along with all the other shows, which uh, we are happy to put up there. So yeah, give us a rating and review. That'd be great. And yeah, that's it for uh, show. Actually, no, I'll point this out. It's almost April, um, which means we're almost at Avengers, which means that summer is almost here, which I'll get, which means that the annual summer movie uh, gamble is uh, coming, uh, which uh, always a lot of fun. But yes, it's a giant competition, uh, more important than March Madness. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's gonna be something to put together. Uh, but yeah, that's coming soon. And uh, okay, let's move on now. Let's get to uh, let's get to know everybody. Reach we ask each other a question or two. Try to set the tone for the podcast. And better get to know everybody. No, no everybody. Oh, <laughs> Mike's getting it. <laughs> uh, but I think I made it worse. No, yeah, yeah. You, 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 random words. You, you you jumped in. That's what's key. I have a question for you guys. Do you want a boat? Is a boat something that you want? Yes, of course. A boat's like, you know, a signifier that you've got your life together. <laughs> there, there's um, an old saying to the effect of the two best days in the life of a boat owner are the day he or she buys the boat and the day he or she sells the boat by all Owning a boat is just a disaster of maintenance fees and staffing and costs. So no, I do not want a boat. I will borrow my friend's boats if I want to go on a boat. Yeah, I don't want a boat. I also don't like the um, being obliged to live near it. Not everyone, not everyone lives near their boats. Yeah. Oh well, I'd have to. Um, 
make time and the energy and the effort to uh, go and be on the boat. Oh, yeah, that's true. I not expect the anti-boat sentiment. <laughs> I love boats. I enjoy being on boats. I just don't want to own the boat myself. I, I, I don't have no sea legs, so boats mean nothing to me. I'm not, I'm not in, inclined to, to get on a boat anytime soon, so owning a boat seems like, you know, that's... I'm just like torn between do I want like uh, like Wolf of Wall Street yacht or do I want like the tiny boat Seth Cohen had in the OC. I can't decide. You like a dinghy? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just one of those because I can afford that boat, you know. I can afford like the boat with the tiny sail that you can't even like adjust really. Well, as it stands, we're three to one on boats, it seems. So we'll <laughs> keep that going. <laughs> well, my vote is times the power of three time game well there's the there's the have and have nots for you right there uh we'll get we'll get to more of that later but for now that's how you play no everybody no everybody Uh (laughs) (laughs) let's move on let's get down to quickies that's where Abe would jump in. He's not here. TM. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, each wicket out now. We... I'll take that. <laughs> John, since he jumped in so quickly, what, what other movies have you seen recently? Um, I did see... Uh, I saw Vice. And I just thought it was okay at best. Were you big on, were you big, on big Short? I thought Big Short was a lot better. I did think Big Short was a lot better. I don't. This one I think was just a little harder, and I don't know if it's because, like, financial chicanery is more fun than like destroying the world chicanery. <laughs> um, and that I don't know if the politics overwhelmed this one for me, or if it just didn't quite have the same zip, or it was harder to kind of get that satirical zip to something like I said, kind of as heavy as war. <laughs> um, I think it's a combination of all those things, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, so this one just, the, this is the, I don't know, I think I'm also kind of burnt out on like the bad people Scorsese stylization biopic now. Like I, like, like I watched like the Tanya Harding one a while back too and I thought that was trash and like, <laughs> I think I've, I've like, I've already been out on, like, biodocs in general, and I think now even the, like, stylized, we're trying to make it funny one is kind of wearing thin on me a little bit. Um, Otherwise, I I watched a documentary I enjoyed a lot uh, called Kusama Infinity. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to Japan on Tuesday, actually, and she's one of my favorite artists, Yayo Kusama. And that's that's kind of just a fun, if you want to see, like, kind of, it's interesting because it curbs an artist who came here uh, in the, I believe the 70s or 60s, uh, was kind of around that Andy Warhol scene, but because maybe uh, she was a woman, didn't quite get the attention she deserved then, but of course she just turned 90 this week uh, and is considered maybe the like biggest artist in the world right now. Um, so that's a really that's a really nice documentary. It's only like an hour and fifteen. It's actually like an easy digestible piece of media. Um, otherwise, uh, I saw the Green Book finally, um, and I, I feel like it like was exactly what I expected, which was like a nice enough movie that if 
you like shine a harsh light on it, it can kind of fall apart a little bit in the social discourse. All right. Best picture all the way, though. That's, that's where we're at. <laughs> uh, Maxwell, how about you? What have you seen recently? Um, I saw Shazam, which is a lot of fun and has a lot of heart and made me happy. And I saw, and I seem to be one of the only people alive, maybe, who saw this, Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase, which is not half bad. It's, so that... I feel like if it had been marketed better, there'd be a lot of young girls who could be very empowered by it. Did that Did that hit theaters? So it was... it, last weekend, it hit theaters. Um, they haven't even been reporting box office numbers, so I'm sort of confused by the entire methodology behind its release. I don't know. I'm confused. That, it's not bad. That seems so strange, like a, a Nancy Drew movie. It seems like you kind of, I mean, there, what? There's like a giant Dora the Explorer movie coming out there. So wouldn't you yeah. like put, put the same kind of effort behind that? Ellen DeGeneres is like the executive producer of this, so she was pimping it on our show a little bit. But I just don't understand why it wasn't marketed better. Because again, I feel like it would have, it would be a good movie for young girls to see because it has a lot of empowering messages and it has a good lesson. And, it's pretty harmless and has a decent mystery. And Sophia Lillis is really charming in the lead role. So, yeah. All right. Mike, how about you? What have you seen recently? I've actually been avoiding the mainstream stuff all month. Um, <clears throat> I saw The Mustang, mm-hmm. which is pretty great, very affecting, and kind of everything you want from a small indie film, you know, focused on intimate human drama. It's, it's not a perfect film by any means, it has a subplot. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I have. Subplot, yeah. yeah, I won't go into the, the details, but it, it really doesn't work and doesn't amount to much. kind of wonder if it'd be better if they just dropped it entirely, but otherwise it's it's pretty great. Um, also saw Ash's Purest White, which is the new film by Zsa Zsanka. It's, it's pretty wonderful, too, um, particularly if you're already familiar with this director, who's kind of widely acclaimed as one of the great world cinema auteurs around today so if you're already partial to this stuff i think you wouldn't be disappointed but um really there's only one film i'm talking about this entire month and it's gaspar noah's climax which is my favorite film of the year so far i've seen it multiple times and it's completely bananas if people know his work it's it's weird to say this but it's actually the more restrained yeah it's uh, the most accessible of his movies yeah, of, of his other stuff um particularly like irreversible which is still his most acclaimed slash controversial slash despised film infamous seems like the best word for it (laughs) (laughs) infamous Um, is a good word (laughs) but from the climax from a visual standpoint from a technical standpoint it's completely compelling and and i thought um i don't like saying this because it's so pretentious and cliched but it's not a film you watch so much as a film you experience and i know that's a phrase that's out there this notion of like experiential cinema it's uh it's an accurate description it's completely overindulgent excessive and a bonkers movie but it's i found it just great to see a director just going for it and just pushing everybody's buttons but also at the same time having the technical chops to make it worthwhile and arresting so for me it would have to be a pretty phenomenal rest of the year to knock this one off my top 10 list in december i loved it it's neat you say overindulgent where i don't disagree at the same time it's it's mainly because of its technical uh, ability like what he's doing with the camera and I feel like that's no different than saying a film's indulgent because of its screenplay for having characters like speak in a very stylistic manner or what have you, where you, you could assign that say, but we're so used to criticizing more story and character than we are 
necessarily like visual motifs or whatnot. And this one's just one that really dials down the idea of character and story to a point. I mean, it's pretty straightforward and just overdoes it on, not overdoes it, it goes hardcore into what he's known for, which is using his camera in a wild, wide variety of ways. Although it's not just the camera movements, it's entirely about this group of people who are just what kind of propelling their bodies left and right through dance and through i mean it's trip they're trippy yeah no even before that just from the very beginning it's all about kind of an excess of of spirit and power and emotion and then it starts getting weird and and horrific uh as as the story turns Mm -hmm. into something else but so i think yeah i'm not saying he's not like he's not going for a a mood for sure i I don't disagree there yeah excess is is kind of an apt description of it even while I don't mean that as a negative thing, it's kind of the uh, the kind of governing philosophy of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I've seen a couple things. One is Triple Threat. Uh, this is. Ooh, you went down there. I've been. I've been tempted. This... I almost enjoy just hearing people talk about it more than trying to watch it. <laughs> Triple Threat. Yeah. This is the martial arts movie that features a uh, Tony Jaa. Eco Uwe's. Yeah, you're thinking Triple Frontier, aren't you? <laughs> oh, man, I got my triples mixed up. Are you thinking Triple Frontier? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the Netflix one. We talked about that last week. But this is, this is this is this is Triple Threat. This is the martial arts VOD film that also has triple in the title. Uh, but yeah, it has Tony Jaa, Iku Uwe's, and Tiger Chen, as well as Scott Adkins and Michael Jai White, and a bunch of other like VOD movie stars that are very good with... Uh, martial arts or what have you, but haven't really like broken into mainstream, or in the case of Michael Jai White, seems to have gone backwards. And then Tony Jaa and Iko Uwes, they've been in like movies well enough, made a lot, a lot of ensembles, and Uwes is part of the Raid franchise, what have you. Um, but this is like an expendables when it comes to uh, VOD action stars. And it's directed by Jesse V. Johnson, who's done a lot of these kind of movies. Um, it's really entertaining. It's a lot of fun. It's... I'll, there's a there's a heavy mix of both the martial arts that all of these stars are known for, as well as a lot of gun like action gunplay, um, which is almost a detriment because you like seeing these guys do the kind of martial arts they're known for. That said, it does deliver on that, and it's pretty nonstop for a 90 minute film. Like it gets you what you want out of this, as far as seeing all of these different stars together constantly battling or bantering with each other. It's a, a lot of fun, and given that I'm not a big fan of what Stallone did with The Expendables, despite the potential for those films, this seems like another, just like the kind of Fast and Furious films kind of ended up being, this seems like the better versions of what you could get by combining so many people into one to make just like a giant ridiculous action movie. Uh, This one, what helps is that it's made by stunt people, essentially, so you get a lot of great shot, greatly shot action um, in the same way that like John Wick has a lot of great action in it because of how it's framed and how it's edited, you get a lot of that here. You get a lot of wide shots. There's a lot of color in the scenes, which is surprising for these movies that are generally pretty cheap. This one actually feels like it has something of a budget to work with to make a colorful film. Um, and yeah, the action looks really good. Uh, whether or not this kind of propels any of these guys to... You know, even even like more mainstream stuff as opposed to kind of these VOD things, it just it works for what it is. So it, yeah, yeah. For Ooh, I have a question for the panel. Yeah, what do you want to see tripled next? Trying to think. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit that I got to cheat while you were saying your spiel. Let's go triple entrapment. Triple triple entrapment. <laughs> Yeah, we we could have like normal entrapments, but what about a triple entrapment? Or there's like multiple spies and 
yeah. covert agents and what have you. I guess, I guess it's I'd like, like a Russian doll of entrapment. <laughs> I guess I'd like to see triple indemnity. <laughs> so there's there there's a CAD involved in insurance. There's someone setting them up, and then there's someone setting that person up. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> for doing that, I'm gonna I want a movie called Body Triple. <laughs> flipping it a little bit. There we go. <clears throat> Is that a sequel to us? <laughs> yeah, it's it's connected to the twins universe that Eddie Murphy and Schwarzenegger keep threatening. <laughs> but yeah, Triple Threat. It's on VOD now. Um, I also saw I saw this uh, like a month back at this point, but it finally came out this weekend. Hotel Mumbai, which is kind of just as much a horror movie as Us is, as far as the intensity of what you're getting. It's based off the real attacks that happened in Mumbai back in 2008. It's a tough film. It it very much it feels very familiar with the films of like Paul Greengrass as far as his kind of like docudramas like United ninety three or Captain Phillips or what have you, um, where it's about these terrorists that come into a a, a hotel in Mumbai um, and proceed to kind of wreak havoc for a long time, and you see a lot of disturbing sights, especially in the midst of even more mass shootings that continue to occur, it's uh, it, it can be rough, for sure. And whether or not we need a genre like this, there's there's things to admire from a technical standpoint. I think the perspective it chooses to take, I mean, you have, like, Army Hammer and Dev Patel are among the stars in this movie, but it doesn't really, it doesn't turn them into action heroes, and it doesn't turn them into kind of the sole people you follow. You get a good ensemble look at the situation that happens. It's just very intense um, for... A long time. It's a good two hours, I believe, like a little more. Um, but um, for what it's doing, it does it well, and I guess as respectably as it can. It's just certainly a, a you know, it can be a difficult watch for sure. But yeah, so that's out now. Uh, that doesn't. Um, that doesn't have anybody we care about from uh, Sicario. They're just advertising it like as a producer. It's not. Like Taylor Sheridan is not part of that project, right? No, yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah. There's like a producer involved, yeah, but it's not that. I mean, that's oh, just yeah. that's just selling the movie at that point. But I yes, know. it's not. It's not specifically from like the makers. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's out now, and yeah, that's enough quickies. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's move on now. Let's get to our trailer talk. Where we talk about one of the newest movie trailers of the week. What we thought about. What's coming out. What have you. And this week we are going over the first trailer for the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and I know, uh, Mike, you're going to kind of bow out of this, um, but we'll get into it right now. Yeah, I'm going to go do a Sudoku or something. Okay. Uh, but yeah, this is, as I said, the new film from Tarantino. It features Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Al Pacino, a bunch of other people. It's set in the 60s during the time of uh charles manson's murders although you'd be you'd have you need to <laughs> you need to know that in advance if you want to get that from this trailer but with that said uh max will start with you what do you think of the trailer for this movie considering it's 90 seconds it's a, it's a good trailer it, i think what it does most effectively is set the tone it looks uh a little silly a little funny um the costumes are on point it has me excited for the movie which i would be anyways because it's a new tarantino film but um, that, that little last gag at the end has had me giggling for days. John, how about you? Oh, uh, I would say if it wasn't the people involved with it, I'd probably be less interested in the trailer, just because it is kind of one of these look-back 
stylized American Hustle type feels to it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's Tarantino. It, it looks like Leo and Brad are gonna have some fun with it, and uh, and uh, and of course, yeah, that last scene is already like a meme blowing up my timelines and social media <laughs> with uh, ways they can use that Leo with ear whisper uh, scene. So. I'm intrigued. I'm actually intrigued too. Uh, this didn't show a, a ton of action, you know, and we're kind of, I don't know how far we're removed from like a Tarantino, you know, doing something that is more just people being people rather than kind of stylized action. So I'm kind of intrigued to see where it goes from there too. I mean, if you look at his filmography, it's not, I mean, he's not, he, he directs action, but I wouldn't say he's an action direct, like an action movie director. I mean, the hate- it's been a while since like he hasn't, you know, done a more. I mean, the hateful eight's three hours of people in a cabin. But they have guns and stuff. Eventually, but it's not. They're not built. It's not built around action sequences. It's built around people discussing things for hefty amounts of time before, like, oh yeah, there's a shootout that happens and it takes place in like a minute and then it's done. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Also realizing I haven't seen Hateful Eight somehow. <laughs> what happened? I feel like I saw it, but I'm like, no, I didn't see it. <laughs> well, I mean, I I don't I I don't disagree with what either of you are saying as far as yeah, like I'm completely into this. It's a new Tarantino film, but yes, it sets the tone rather well. And I I've been saying that I given like the supposed controversy around it involving like having a film that involves the the Sharon Tate murder the Manson murders um there's a there's many who are just I guess out for blood when it comes to Tarantino as far as like how could you do something like this where I look at thinking for one thing I think Tarantino is a very smart filmmaker and knows what would be like not not the right way to handle something like this at the same time given his other movies especially Glorious Bastards in particular it's not as if he's sticking to history all the time here. I, I I have some big suspicions that things will be kind of different as far as how this film plays out. But even regardless, a film like this, I think that I think you said it best, Max. Well, it sets the tone with this trailer. Like you you know what you're getting into here. I I like there's a very little hint of menace that you see the actor playing Charles Manson smiling at the camera, no less. But like it, it's not it's setting up more. Here's the fun that you're gonna have with this movie and the time that it's set in and with these actors. And I very much appreciate that. Uh, but it looks great. I mean, that's... <laughs> it's, it's presumptuous to assume you know what a movie's going to be like based on 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. But, even, I mean, there's been people making presumptions about what the movie's going to be, <laughs> be forcing anything at all. <laughs> so it's... Sure, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely excited for, like, goofy Leo. Anytime we can get Leo... Hewing more toward comedy, I'm I'm a fan. I I, I love his Wolf of Wall Street character and his acting in that, and so this looks again like we're gonna kind of let him be hammy. And it's kind of fun to have him be hammy after you know we have such a history of him being very dramatic. Uh, now we're kind of getting this weird back end of his career where he's more willing to goof around. It kind of comes and goes because like The Revenant is as serious as it gets. <laughs> Well, it didn't come at all back in the day. <laughs> well, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood opens uh, July 26th in theaters, so we'll uh, we'll check that out there. Uh, Mike, you uh, you still around? I am back. Okay. All right. With all that said, let's get to our main review for us. Crawdaddy! Ha ha! 
He's kidding, right? He's not kidding. Hey, I think it's vodka clock. Oh, yeah. Where's Jason? Jason? Jason! Where were you? I didn't know if you were lost. Stick with me, and I'll keep you safe. I got the... There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scared of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy... Alright, that should have been some of the trailer for us. Following the runaway success that was the Oscar-winning Get Out, Jordan Peele has made a follow-up film that moves in similar yet different circles. The film is still horror and could be seen as another social thriller, but it's also covering a broader concept. Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke star as the married parents taking their kids for a vacation at their summer home in Santa Cruz. Nyong'o's Adelaide seems to be all sorts of seems to be seeing all sorts of ominous warnings in the build-up to their first night, where they are suddenly confronted by a family of strangers. The thing is, those strangers look exactly like Adelaide and the rest of her family. John, let's start with you. Where um, Were you a fan of, uh, of Peele's uh, Get Out? And where did you see with his follow-up? I think I enjoy, I enjoy Get Out quite a bit. Um, and I've definitely uh, think that it will probably be remembered as the movie of that year when we when we look back and we recall. Um, and so I was very much looking forward to this because I'm a fan of like movies that kind of work in different I don't know genres and moods at the same time. I think that that's generally the best filmed art is something that can make you laugh, make you tense, make you scared, make it dramatic. And uh, I thought Get Out was pretty masterful in its ability to kind of shift between moods. Uh, and of course, all of its allegoricalness was was very interesting, fun. And uh, no, I was a, I was a big fan of Get Out, so I was I was definitely looking forward to going to see us and and made a point to you know get out there on Friday night right away. So what do you think of it? I'm still thinking about it. Like I think it's funny when you say what do you think about it because mm-hmm. I feel like almost not to a detriment but makes you want to say to a detriment you think about it (laughs) like like you 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 live it and you watch it and there's very enjoyable parts the very funny film um and it's also a very creepy film but it's almost most effective thing is the amount of research you want to do afterwards and the amount of just thinking and talking about it you want to do and I don't know if that will end up being a weakness of Jordan Peele or like a strength or, or, or not matter at all. But it is interesting to me that like it's almost more fun to like live it afterwards than even like live it within the movie. And so I guess my big takeaway is, is that like I when I was watching it, I I was having trouble figuring out my mood while I was watching it. And I think that's because Jordan Peele does such a good job of kind of creating almost like a new like movie type where like I couldn't get a bearing on my like kind of my emotional scale during it because it's it's kind of such an unusual tone um, but ultimately I would say it's a very successful movie and I've kind of got could go down any number of rabbit holes with it so it's kind of hard for me to pin down the macro on 
it because it so lends itself to a lot of micro uh, investigations. Michael, shoot to you. Uh, where have you been with uh, with Jordan Peele's move into horror, and what do you think of this film? Uh, I'm going to echo a lot of what was just said. I think, you know, we've had this conversation a couple times on the podcast, this expressing fascination about comedians who turn to horror, and we've had some um, theories on, on how that relationship works, because both genres are about set up and pay off, and you need a sense of timing, and, and Jordan Peele, even when he's working in, in the horror genre, there's a, there's a playfulness to him. And his films kind of very deftly weave social commentary with just well-executed horror with comedy beats. And I think Get Out is, is the example par excellence of that. I really, really like Get Out. <clears throat> and it's a film that I've enjoyed more as time has gone on. I, the more I think about it, the more I kind of what relive certain moments and, and understand how sophisticated things really are. Uh, so, so I'm really big on Get Out. I think with us, so I was very excited for us, no question. And it's definitely not the lightning bolt that Get Out was, I feel. I think as I've been thinking it over, I've been inclined to divide us into two registers, right? The first, there's a larger vision for the film, which is packed with metaphors and big thematic ideas. And it's, it's very plainly ambitious and very ambiguous at the end. And so, uh, just echoing the previous statement, it's, it's a film that I think people will come out of wanting to jump right into conversations about it. And that's, a, that's great, because there's a lot to discuss and debate about what's going on here. So it's a big success on that front. Um, the second area for me is whether the film works as a genre narrative. And this is where I wasn't quite as satisfied. I think Jordan Peele has a really good sense of visuals and, and he can set up a sequence and all that. Um, but on the whole, I didn't find the film's visceral elements all that impactful. And I had some real problems with some of the story's details, which I know we're not doing spoilers, so I'll be careful here uh, for the time being. Uh, we can get into it later as we outline more of what happens in the story. But there are some revelations late in the film that I intuited right from the beginning. And so it doesn't mean it didn't work for the story, but it did diminish my experience a little bit. So I guess overall, I found the film more interesting as an intellectual exercise than I found it exciting as a horror film. I guess I'd summarize it that way. Maxwell, where are you at? Um, you know, it would have been really easy for, Jordan Peele after the incredible commercial critical and award success of Get Out to make uh, an easy follow-up film um, and he did the exact opposite of that I mean even from the the marketing and the trailers there was a, you know although the idea of doppelgangers and identity was was clear it almost seemed like this was going to be a fairly traditional home invasion film and that really turns out to be just a minor element of the larger narrative he's putting together so i think it's really exciting to see a filmmaker go for broke and uh make this film that is just rife with symbolism and metaphor um he uh you know i think it's well known that one of jordan peele's biggest influences is rod sterling in the twilight zone and there is a lot of that dna in this film but there are definitely two disparate elements at play here. There's the more traditional 
horror film with elements of comedy and there's the 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 scares and the violence and that home invasion element that the trailer promises and there's then there's this whole other thing that i found so intellectually engaging and worthy of discussion and analysis that has had me um just had my mind racing for days since i saw this film um so it's interesting when you have something that works on one level and works on another level and the question of is it a satisfying piece of cinema for me it was and i think it was also helped by just having a terrifically engaged audience you know when you see a movie opening day in times square new york with a sold-out crowd uh with diverse people who are really into it it made it all the more exciting um so it, it does work on multiple levels and it has had my mind racing so i, I thoroughly enjoyed the film but I, I could see where there would be some disconnect for some people as it does really require afterthought which is exciting and not what you typically get from horror films uh, that are playing in 3,000 screens. I'll note that as we kind of carry on this discussion that we are going to go into spoilers as much as we need to um, after we kind of wrap up my general thoughts here so we're not going to kind of hold back on certain specifics Uh, so if you haven't seen us keep that in mind Uh, but yeah I I guess I, I I agree with what everyone is kind of coming at. I, I think everyone knows my stance on Get Out at this point because I was a big fan of the film. It was on my top ten of that year, what have you. Um, so no need to kind of reiterate over that. Us, um, I was very much looking forward to. I wanted to see what Peel would do following up, following up Get Out. And I do like that he takes kind of this pivot towards being even more unconventional while still working with some kind of iconic horror imagery as far as setting up something that's going to have a kind of a a lasting value um, just from the kind of character design alone when it comes to the doppelgangers. At the same time, there is a lot to dig into as far as what people could be getting at, and I feel like there's a lot of different kinds of takeaways you can have from a film like this given the broad concepts he's covering and the imagery he uses to kind of evoke certain feelings. Uh, From a just a visceral standpoint there there's a lot that works for me as far as this being a horror narrative um i what tends to kind of get to me in horror films and not one that gen- I, I like horror films enough where like i admire what they can do although i don't get like scared of them too often but this film does have certain hallmarks that generally work for me in that realm that make it unnerving and that comes down to whole home invasion creepy kids and like body snatching um, which this one has all of those things and it works um, that sounds like a triple threat (laughs) yes exactly um yeah now you're getting it but uh, so using those elements i was I wouldn't say I was like on the edge of my seat. Like it's it didn't work as a kind of nonstop horror ride, but I was certainly moved in certain ways by how it was trying to approach its story, which has so much else going on. Uh, by subverting some expectations, I was very much impressed. I mean, it, I didn't expect it not to be like funny, but there's certainly a lot of dark humor here. But I did like how Peel seems to have a. I mean, he has a bigger budget with this those versus Get Out. Like, it's somewhere around like 20, where Get Out was like five, if not less. And so you can see him working with that to make a, a bigger experience. The film feels more expansive. It There's more, there, there's a bigger show of kind of his technical prowess as far as what he's putting on screen, what, he, what he's um, doing with the camera, how he's showing off 
what else he can do beyond just kind of capture a, a mood or a moment. And, and there's there's a lot there that I really admire. And I think that we'll get to this as well. But what I think really helps us film out is the performances are fantastic all around. Uh, like Nyong'o has a tremendous performances to his two different roles, uh, but you also have Winston Duke and, and the actors playing the children who are equal you know they're very they're very good as well they have there's a there's a lot for everyone to do in this film just by nature of everyone having a a doppelganger character to work with i also i admire the film's choice to kind of be a movie and by that i mean it's not there's an element of today's culture where movies are just pointed out nonstop for everything that's wrong with them and things with those things like cinema sin videos or whatnot. And this is not a film designed to kind of appease those folks. And I don't care about that. <laughs> like I, I, I very much just don't like those types of videos. And this is a film that's not out to give you all kinds of answers to every single question you have about the logic of this movie. I don't think that the movie betrays its own logic, but I do think that there is a lot purposely left vague or unanswered, and you can fill in some gaps, but not all. And I I think Peel's very aware of that, and he's you know not he's not catering to a certain audience. And I think it's all the better for that, because you can do a lot with symbolism and imagery versus straight-up explanation of every single thing. Um, so yeah, I was I was a big fan for a number of reasons, and it's it, it has not left my mind as far as an unnerving experience. Let's dig into it. I would yeah. I, I think the point that I didn't bring up that you did is uh, I'll be intrigued to see what kind of accolades Lapita gets for this as the year goes on because I do think uh, it's just kind of mind blowing that she just was cool. Or, or either she was cool or Hollywood was uncool uh, since 12 Years a Slave because she's only really done Black Panther as far as live action. So it's inter- this is kind of her first real show. I'm sorry, but do not disrespect Queen of Cotway. That is a great film in which she's very good. I hear... I. Queen of Cotway is a good movie, but I what I hear is what what you're what John you're not wrong about is yeah like it's mainly been motion capture st- it's been it's what it's mostly been is it's what it's mostly been is motion capture stuff in like Jungle Book and the Star Wars movies and this is like this is her first legitimate like lead role in a movie. Uh, oh crap! Right, she freaking is awesome, <laughs> and she just I just I don't know it's 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 kind of crazy because she was marked for so much and then she kind of has been you know in the background so uh and this is just such a great showcase for her uh i think looking at the trailers i don't know i did not realize how much the doppelganger acting would come into play uh and it i mean especially for her it's 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 really a dual a full-on dual role and it's it's a, an amazing showpiece the, showcase piece for her the, the wild thing about that is with the doppelganger character the beyond the i guess general creepiness of the doppelgangers in general the the role she has in what when she's kind of explaining things is all exposition like that's really what it amounts to but it's never not compelling be, between like the voice that's being used for it and what's being like how it's being explained and how it's framed, particularly like like in well, yeah, there's there's just excellent use of split diopter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the in that mm-hmm. every time I see in a film, I get excited. There's there's just there's a lot there that works, and I think makes it into this. I mean, one half of a very good performance. I mean, I it's no 
getting into accolade type talk is <laughs> it's foolhardy at this point just because for one thing it's march and another oh, right, right. and another like if like if colette's not going to get nominated for like hereditary i, I just like, <laughs> it's it's hard to kind of guess at this point if the academy's like yeah you know what horror's in this year like it, it just kind of you know i mean two years ago kaluuya got in so what do i know but at the right. same time <laughs> I just want to say is it's fun to see a really good actor get to flex in what is, <laughs> I mean, by all box office accounts, going to be a, a, a large mainstream hit. And uh, and it's just, I mean, it's just really good casting. I mean, Winston Duke, like, we, we've seen him as this big, powerful guy, and then he gets to be the goofy dad in this one. He, he provides... You know, I would say the lion's share of, of comic relief as well in the movie and, and does it quite well. And so, and, and like you said, the, the children are great. Uh, the secondary characters are so <laughs> well cast with Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss. And so, uh, I mean, the cast definitely helps, I think, when you're trying to do something as potentially heady as this. It really is helpful to have such a good ensemble to deliver it. Let's, let's talk about that a bit because the film... I think Get Out strikes a different way. I don't want to keep like comparing things, but as far as what what you're getting out of an audience experience, something like Get Out does have a more kind of direct impact on you, and it ha- it has it it ends on a certain kind of high that I think helped propel that film to what it was. Where Us is more challenging, and I don't think any of us are denying that. I do think it's a it's a film that's less like quote unquote crowd pleasing. Um, it, it it is way more heady. It has a lot more to kind of con- consider and think about. And even by the end, there's a triumph that occurs, but there's still you know there's self doubt you can have and what's taking place and who you're still following and what have you. Do you, do you see what I'm saying with that? Is, is that is that resonate? Well, it it does, but I think there's a lot more continuity between uh-huh. um, between Get Out and this film than I think people are giving credit for. Um, like for one thing, well, I mean, it's it's hard to jump right in without kind of discussing where we agree or disagree about how to interpret the film. So maybe okay, yeah, well, it's... that comment, but but yeah, there there's certain important sort of symbolic or allegorical values to us that we probably need to. Um, get on the table before we start to have our sort of... Okay, then, let, then, then, let, then let's proceed to do that. If it, Regardless of how involved you might have, because I know, John, you said you're still thinking about it, but, like, Mike, is there a, are there specific things that you want to share that you took away from it as far as what's being done here? Uh, well, it's... So, so the, the doppelgangers, the red characters, right, are organizing a rebellion... Uh, and, and am I okay to just kind of yeah yeah that's it yeah I, yeah yeah so they're organizing a rebellion of sorts and they're finally breaking free of their bondage essentially so that necessarily points to the main analogy being slavery and that's because we, what we learn is that they're forced to live an existence without any sense of agency over their own bodies or their own identities separate from the ownership of the people of privilege living above them. And that's um, that's a key reason I have to assume that the Lupita Nyong'o character is literally in chains for a good portion of the movie, right, to further reinforce the iconography. Um, but at the same time, it's very much, um, the film is very conscious about class uh, disparity. For one thing, the dad is constantly envying the neighbor's bigger house or the bigger boat. And so the film is putting into focus... Um, or at least positing a strong connection between class competition and material wealth with a basic obliviousness to human suffering that's happening 
elsewhere right under our noses, right? So, so this film appears to be heavily uh, sort of informed by sort of questions of class difference and class misery. That's that's my initial takeaway from it. All right, anybody uh, agrees? It's you bring you bring up the slavery aspect, which is actually not one I considered. There's a lot of other ones I have, but that's one that I didn't think of. I, I didn't. I, yeah, go ahead. I didn't consider slavery so much as I considered just decades of American trauma and how in this country we tend to ignore entire groups of people and cast them aside. Um, so for me, it wasn't necessarily specifically about black Americans or slavery as it was all sorts of marginalized groups, whether it be Native Americans or Jews or you know those less fortunate living in the middle of the country. It, it felt like the the red people because the and we're in full spoiler territory yes yeah okay so it, it was clear that the government had this project and then abandoned it but then you have all these people and how many times has the government just abandoned groups of people who need help that's what struck out to me more so than um, a specific allegory to slavery yeah, I should clarify that. Um, I, I agree more with what you had to say. I think I should have done that in reverse. It's clearly about sort of a uh, systemic, historical, uh, and persistent oppression or marginalization of people, um, and that can be interpreted a number of ways. And I think given that sort of Jordan Peele has a history going back to Key and Peele about sort of playing off of issues of racial code switching and racial perceptions and misperceptions, um, uh, and some of the iconography and things like that in the film, the history of slavery as being one of the primary historical sins of American society marginalizing another group has to be sort of weaved in as one of the possible areas of marginalization and dehumanization, right? So it's not the only interpretation or necessarily even the primary one, but I think it's it's kind of necessarily weaved in, or the film is at least open, it's legible for that, I think. Among among a whole. No, you make a good point, which I think is why we're all intrigued because that's not. It's just not one that I guess because the other elements are so overwhelmingly right there. It, it feels like okay that that is that that it feels like a legitimate reason to, or thought or thought to bring up, uh, especially when you point out the chains. Like yeah, it's like okay, this actually adds up quite well. Uh, John, what are you going to say? Well, I was going to say in the. I mean, we're in full spoilers. I think to me the ending is what I think a lot of that doesn't work until the ending almost where um it's just very fascinating the mood and the emo like the emotional plane that the ending is on is just really unsettling and weird when you say the ending yeah. do you mean like just like final shot territory or just like by no, the no. third act in general or uh, yes third act okay and what, what adelaide you know ends up doing toward the end um because that's kind of the cherry on top of a lot of the allegory is what do we gain? What do we lose when we try to switch between, <laughs> you know, these classes, these situations, these bonds, etc.? Um, and I think that that's kind of its most effective is is kind of and and the acting I think lends itself to kind of the like really finishing all these que like at least finishing emotionally all the all the difficult questions that are being asked. Maybe we don't know precisely what is being alluded to, but like, I think you definitely get I think that's left open on purpose. The emotion he wants to at the end as to what we're supposed to feel about it. Oh, for sure. Cause I mean, it ends on a, it ends on a, 
Well, it ends on two notes. I mean, you get one that's more intimate because you're focused directly on certain characters, and then you get a broader examination of, okay, this is what's going on. And there's not even a resolution to that broader perspective. It's just like, yep, this is happening. Like, this which is kind of wild. Um, there is a kind of deconstruction of America going on by the end of this movie. Um, well, if, if you take um, an even more simplistic view of it as just like the haves and the have-nots, uh-huh. um, and... What I find most interesting about that is uh, we've all beat around the bush here a little bit in that the, the final few minutes has this this big twist that I think um, one of you, I don't know who it was, alluded to intuiting it earlier on in the film. Yeah, and certainly, yeah. certainly when you look back, the, the hints are there. It's not one of those twists that doesn't add up. It makes perfect sense. And I think what's interesting is it shows in this, this uh, dichotomy of the haves and the have-nots that it's all about the privilege that the haves have that allow them to reach the potential they do because we realize that it is a have-not that we've been watching this entire time who has this great life with a husband she loves with two beautiful children with this lovely house they're able to buy a boat they're able to go on these weekend or summer trips so it's all about the privilege that the haves are afforded that separates the haves from the have-nots and i think that's another interesting underlying texture of this film um yeah, and that and that switcheroo at the end, when you realize you've been watching a have-not, it also does a lot to kind of blur the distinction between perpetrator and victim. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, situation as well, which which is kind it of almost, fantastically intriguing. Also, it also it almost gives me empathy towards the red people. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, there's in particular with red is the version the, the the other version of uh, Nyong'o's character that's like the name of the character I mean it you get a sense that like the, they're all a certain way before she helps plan this uprising and he- hearing the initial dis- like speech that she delivers describing how she was raised I mean when you think back on that understanding the position that she's in now that you understand like the kind of all the things about it yeah it's there's there there's a there's a not just like a little empathy, there's like a heartbreaking aspect to what's taking place here because you're watching someone that has a soul have to deal with the things that ones that don't do regardless. And so it's like, it's all the more painful to think about like the implications there. Well, I think that's the achievement. I think if there is a soul, a major achievement that like, I just, I feel like he almost creates a different emotion or a different feeling than any movie I can remember kind of because of all of this complexity it's almost like i think that's why we have to think about it so much afterwards is because it's really hard to process in the moment because we're not used to processing it a movie this way like we're not used well you don't you don't get mainstream horror that many directions you know you don't you don't get mainstream horror that does it in that way and you certainly don't get it in a way that's (laughs) challenging you with you know with a cast that doesn't you know conventionally look this way to say the least i i think part of it is the way we tend to set expectations for ourselves and what we're about to experience you know if you're going to an art house theater and seeing a film by yes for no just as an example that was brought up earlier your your mind is prepared to experience something whereas if you're going to an amc or a regal and seeing a film with major stars um by a filmmaker who is you know, lauded in the mainstream, you're not necessarily expecting to have to engage with it in the same way. Oh, well, so I, wanna, I, I might push back on that a little bit just because we're we're consciously coming out to see the director of Get Out. 
right? So there was at least some expectation that this film would uh, uh, exhibit a level of sophistication or allegory oh, I'm, commentary. No, right? I, I don't disagree. I, I wasn't suggesting sophistication, but I, I do think um, this film is, uh, I don't know what, what I'm trying, just more ambiguous and ambitious than even Get Out would have suggested. Because I, think, I, do, I do think Get Out is for all the thought that goes into what else is going on there beyond the core narrative. I mean, there is, there's something, I, I think I said this, there's something more immediate about it. It's about, there's, and it's more plain, it's, it's wearing it more on its sleeve as far as what it's trying to get at. I, oh, I mean, yeah, there's, 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 there's more, more satisfying, straightforward narrative and you leave the theater with a certain high with I'm Get Out where yeah, you're more uh, just frazzled maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe one way to characterize it is I mean it, it uh, I would pity anybody who comes away from Get Out without it, like thoughts on their minds. But Get Out presumably could work as a as a fun film for people who just do not care at all about allegorical significance and uh-huh. don't want to take it there. It, it works as a straight up narrative, whereas uh, us, you're going to end up being really confused and, and scratching your head if you aren't sort of watching it on that register right you need to really be prepared i I mean i do think that on a if you just look at it as it is yes i mean there's a you're denying yourself from getting a kind of further enjoyment out of what peels cooked up here but i do think it does it gives you an a to b to c narrative that you can be presented with as far as like this happened these people showed up we dealt with it and also this happened like i mean it's it's there but i think it yeah it's not as i mean it you know this movie's almost two hours long compared to get out which is you know kind of a lean 100 minutes i believe like it, it, it's less straightforward as far as something more traditional that you see when it comes to kind of a home invasion type film that takes even broader turns. Um, I'm kind of curious. Uh, maybe this is a way to move forward a little bit is to take some of the pieces. And I, I went with a friend, and honestly, when we came out of it, I think we were both fascinated by it. But I both think we said we thought Get Out was maybe a scarier film, <laughs> like. I don't know how you feel, uh, but like I felt way, I guess, or at least a more tense film than this one. Um, what do you guys, I mean, how do you guys think the horror works in this movie? I, I will say that I think this, this film got under my skin more. I feel like what, for me, Get Out, because the situations, despite, regardless of, like, the end and, like, the ultimate thing going on as far as what these, what this family was doing, um, I do think that the, the way you're the, the the slights that you know a black man is dealing with among that family and amongst the people around him those are things that to me are more relatable uh for for, for obvious reasons uh, so like i didn't like i was i was more in tune with kind of the dark humor going on there and then that's taken to an extreme and it's mixed with obviously some like body horror and some uncomfortable imagery where this film because it felt more alien to me um as far as kind of where it went from from basically, you know, knowing the ads, you know, like a certain thing that's going to happen, but then it has to keep going from there, and you're like, okay. And because there was more of a surprise element of where it could be going at that point, I feel like it, it got to me more. And even sitting with it, it got to me more. And thinking about yeah. thinking about my own like persona being taken away and doubled and moved on to somebody else, like that for me, that's inherently scarier. Yeah, I Which I guess Get Out kind of does too, actually, as far as taking your identity away and putting it into something else. I guess that kind of does exactly that. <laughs> I, I would say maybe uh, Get Out is more traditionally scary in terms of 
you know, clutching your armrest and being in, like immediately intense while watching it. Whereas us is more unsettling um, and has stuck with me more and, and, and had me a little uh, on edge. And I will say the imagery of the sun doppelganger, who I believe is called Pluto, with that mask and the way he moves, that to me is scarier than anything in Get Out. I would say that the son and the daughter are both scary. In this movie. Yeah, they're both really scary. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's been a, a long trope before that children are scary and these children are really scary. And just and to get into it, I mean, just a little bit with that, I'm sorry, it was just a pause. Like, as far as scary children go, you don't see scary black children very often in a no. movie. And I do think that's something that, and that doesn't, that's not like a, there's no negative there. It's just something that you honestly just don't see in horror all that much. And I do think it there the way he approaches it is very effective. And both of these young actors are just fantastic. Even just their facial expressions mm-hmm. and and their physicality are are terrific. You know, major accolades to both of them. I think they are, are due. Yeah, and both both as the regular and the doppelganger. Yeah, I mean every actor in the, all of the main actors in this movie to a certain point. I mean Lupita the most presently and, and clearly, but they're all playing two roles. And although um, the majority of the doppelgangers are not verbal, um, it's the physicality that's super impressive. I mean, Winston Duke, just, you know, when the two of them are standing next to each other, intellectually, you can recognize that it's the same person, but just the way he carries himself, his shoulders, his hands, the way he moves is so different. I can't can't imagine that was easy to pull off, especially when you're not acting opposite anyone because you'd have to film it once and then film it again, playing the opposite side. I, I have a question, actually, um, in terms of your audience experience. So when uh, uh, Winston Duke's doppelganger or Tim Heidecker's doppelganger was sort of screaming, did you find that funny? Did your audience find that funny? Was there laughter? There were some chuckles. I don't recall. Not, not at that moment. I think it's more the nervousness of the situation as opposed to it being implied as something. I don't think you're saying that either, but I think the kind of just the reaction you're getting is like i don't understand what this is but <laughs> like that kind of reaction i was gonna say my my crowd was my crowd laughed at all the, the comedy cues uh but i would say much uh for us it's much different than get out where uh there wasn't a lot of like nervous or gasps or like the other side didn't hit my audience as viscerally as uh, Get Out did, as I recall. I think the the biggest gasp might have come when the when you when you realize there are more doppelgangers, <laughs> like when because it's because it, it, it goes because it because it builds up to it. Like you get you like you end like a point in the movie where it's like okay, the main family has seemingly gotten away for now. So then we cut to Moss and Heidecker's family, and it's like. You feel I feel like you know that something's going to happen because why are you showing this family so extensively at this point? And their banter is very funny also. Like it's 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 a mix of comedic build up and horror build up because you're you know you're you're have you're you're getting a nice calm before another storm sets in. So by the time it does and the first people they attack is the daughters, it's like, "Oh, this is the kind of that and that became the biggest gasp I think in the because it's like that that whole scene is an exemplary horror set piece with the uh... The use of the Beach Boys and, and the intensity, that's a really terrific scene. And Elizabeth Moss really is, is fantastic in her dual roles. When she's like in the mirror putting on the makeup, that was chilling. The, the, that's a good point to point out the music. Michael Abel's, um, the yeah. score is terrific in this thing. Uh, the, the theme is memorable, for one thing. And the kind of the way it's utilized throughout, I think, is, 
handled incredibly well it doesn't rely on there's there's no there's i mean there's maybe a jump or two but they're like they're earned but it's not a film that relies on that let alone stings on the score to really emphasize it like it just it creates a it, it helps create the atmosphere throughout this film and uh no go ahead oh sorry so since we're talking about whether the scares are effective i think it's, it's all very nicely executed um I did have a, a problem with how the, the, the plot sort of unfolds in relation to the, the, the scares and the stakes of the film, and I wonder what you guys think of this. Um, this was my biggest distraction for me, is that, like, I'm sure you'd agree it's not a problem that the movie is really out there or fantastical, but you do have to sort of follow the rules of your own universe. And I think uh, Aaron uh, alluded to this earlier. You were saying that uh, the movie is very content not to sort of wrap everything up and explain everything away, mm -hmm. which is one of its strengths. It's happy to stay ambiguous. But I think the film is also really fast and loose in presenting the nature of the threat. Um, it's I found it wildly inconsistent about whether these doppelgangers are here to kill us and usurp us and replace the original family, or if they've just come to terrorize them in a sort of funny game style home invasion scenario. It's also I I, I you know, like are you playing around with them or are you here to kill them? Well, I, I don't I don't family is dispatched immediately. Well, because well, I think the difference is because I I hear what you're saying. I I don't think it plays fast. I think the the key is that the Wilson family. Nyong'o and Duke and everybody like they're in red is in control of that one and she's the one with the soul she's the one that's been replaced in this scenario and she's been planning this and she's the one that has seemingly because she's different than the others has informed the rest of her group her fair her, her, her unit <laughs> to act a certain way um right. so, I, so I, I hear what you're saying uh -huh. because she is the leader of the revolution she's got sort of a different stake in the situation but i think the inconsistencies don't end there for me so there's this thing of whether the doppelgangers necessarily mimic the behavior of the family members there's, uh -huh. there's the little the little boy doppelganger they're able to dispatch that character because it's compelled to mimic behavior. So there are times when they, they always do, and there's times where they don't. There's also uh, another, if I can give you an obvious example to me, it's it's the scene that involves, a, there's a neighbor, when the uh, doppelganger girl, daughter, mm -hmm. is like playing hide and seek on the car, and the neighbor comes out, and he doesn't know what's happening, and he says, hey, what's the big idea? And he gets murdered. Now... This happens relatively early, and we don't know the full extent of the crisis. But once we do and realize it's a, it, it, everybody has doppelganger, it doesn't make sense to me that this neighbor character would be murdered in this way by the daughter doppelganger when he should have had a doppelganger coming out for him to begin with. And so, I mean, it's it's a it's a variable. I think what is the daughter is the daughter permitted to just kill someone who's not her immediate doppelganger it's i mean the the way it's described later on when they're on the news it just it, they describe it as like people just come up and just start stabbing everybody like i don't it doesn't seem like there's a and there's no mention of the fact that they look like each other like i, I don't know if there's a i think it's vague enough i i i hear what you're saying i don't i don't think the film betrays its own logic honestly i do i think they're in terms of like the mimicry stuff I think it's a battle between the kind of trance that these doppelgangers are stuck in versus the kind of instructions or free will that Red has allowed them to have. And it, I, I can agree to a point that it plays a little like it. It has to use that to narrative convenience for some situations, such as like the big fire scene, um, which I think is really evocative as far as the imagery goes. By the time you get to that sequence, especially the way the trailer played it, because it's different <laughs> as far as a character walking in or out of fire. But I do I 
I think there's I think there's just enough I think there's enough there that Peel could explain it if you really wanted to as far as how that would work. Human variable also. I mean, we're all different. We're all coded differently, and if these doppelgangers are to a certain point clones or whatever, you know, we don't know specifically of the people. We all behave differently, so they would have different goals, different ideas. Some people would maybe want to go directly and, and kill their doppelgangers. Others would maybe just want to cause general havoc, or maybe. It just took those doppelgangers longer to get to that guy's house, and they would have been there, but he got killed by someone else beforehand. So basically, I don't, I don't know if we have enough, a big of a big enough sample size to determine if there was a rule being broken. Sure, <laughs> I, I do. No, I, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, I feel like the the murder of the neighbor and things. These are horror elements that fit in the particular space they're in in the narrative given that we don't have the full knowledge of what's going on yet, right? So given the limited knowledge we have, this is an effective setup, but once we have the full information, then you look back and you think, wait a minute, I'm not sure. That's where I'm at. I'm yet to be convinced that it all lines up as opposed to kind of going back and looking for explanations to excuse these things. Mm -hmm. It feels like, like you say, narrative convenience um, plays a part in it. And perhaps that's necessary, but for me, I found it distracting as the film was going on. Uh, I look back on in hindsight. And I think that's the separation where I don't, you know, I'm not claiming that us is perfect and never has anything less than there's there's not like a little bit of mess here at the same time it wasn't enough to distract me from the experience that was taking place i, I just wanted to issue okay. oh, i'm sorry just um since someone brought up the uh, one of the what i found to be one of the really striking images that managed to be creepy but also ties into some of the thematics of the film is the elizabeth moss doppelganger mm-hmm. <clears throat> because we learn early on that she's had some plastic surgery right she brushes it off you know just a little tuck here and there no big deal but when we meet the doppelganger, she's covered in scars across her face. And I thought that was a great visualization of the film's hypothesis that one person's expression of privilege is another person's sort of horror. And that's a really fascinating and tragic thing. Um, and insofar as like good screenwriting is about showing and not telling, that's such a powerful image that gets right to the core of what the film is encouraging, or at least appears to be encouraging us to contemplate about how you know there, there's a there's a consequence or there's like another side that what the, the the privileges that the haves get to experience translate to something completely different for the have-nots however as as fantastic as i found that image i have to note that i did find it a tad distasteful that the juxtaposition between elizabeth moss and her doppelganger there kind of associates women undergoing plastic surgery with essentially self-mutilation and i find there's something condescending about that like maybe keep those opinions to yourself mr male director i think it's different when it comes to a horror movie I and mean, you can explain that away with with any situation where you ride a line of exploitation at that point and right. when it comes to the genre when it comes to the genre such as this i don't think it's i don't think it's to trying to like make some kind of weird taboo point uh, about how to explain someone is just kind of giving you an implication based off the setup where you're describing like yeah we've we've established that the kind of the shadows of these people have to deal with a harsher reality than the you know the the ones on the surface and so this is that's i think it's more in line with this is just an expression of how that plays as opposed to a, a way of looking down on those that partake in such activity no i think that's possibly a, a byproduct of it's a byproduct yeah i don't think it's a direct implication generating a uh, a set of images that work for your theme but at the same time it, it has this tinge to it that i don't like and also I, I think there's a bit of like having your cake and eating it too by 
purposefully having a film that is clearly rife with symbolism, while at the same time saying, "Yeah, but th- this this don't you know read read into this the way I w- I prefer versus the things that you know." Here's where I want you to uh, interpret things a certain way, and here are things that I'm going to explain away. You know, I think that's there's a there's a kind of um, wishy-washiness. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the, I would say it's wishy-washy. Just that's the nature of art, where there are, as you said, byproducts that come out of something, and someone could take some completely different turn of an event from it. And I guess Ivan is if appeals, you know, making some <laughs> he's not yet anyway making some plea to say no, please don't read this. It's just like you happen to. I, I I'm only you know, going off of what I suspect is the case. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm right or you're wrong. It's just, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I, ultimately, I mean, these are fair questions to ask because there's such a strong um, strain in the film and in Jordan Peele's work generally that is so political in nature that, like, we, if, if we can reasonably say the film is sophisticated as a social and political allegory, much in the way Get Out most definitely is, then we certainly should be asking and interpreting what the film's politics actually are. And so this is where the film is interesting because it's going to produce different and possibly conflicting interpretations, right? Oh, yeah, lots. There's <laughs> going to be a lot of writing about this film in the coming weeks. Yeah. Uh, quick, quickly, I, I, I just, I, to me, I think it's interesting, first of all, that like this movie just makes you have to pay attention all the time. <laughs> the, the Elizabeth Moss doppelganger detail where she's cutting her face like, it's easy to fall and just be like, man, this is just a creepy horror movie rather than I didn't actually think of it on that level until I read about it afterwards. And as far as the questions go, I do think it's interesting that the confidence I have in the people doing the movie kind of lets them get away. Like, it's interesting that I like open-ended art. I like sloppy art, but it only works if it's done so well that you're like, well, it was done so well within the framework. Like, the sloppiness comes, be- like, you allow for the sloppiness if there is in the questions that we're kind of talking about because of how well it's kind of executed anyway. So can I bring up another strain here? So it's important to note that it's implied this is happening in America, right? But it's not a global uprising. Uh-huh. Is that clear? I think it's clear. I think it's yeah. very specific. <laughs> I didn't. I, I. That's what I kind of. One of my favorite, like, kind of lingering questions was like, "What is the extent of this?" Is like, I, mean, I, I you could interpret it that they're the only family left. I think. I think it. I think it directly makes it very much an American thing by using like the hands across yeah. America thing by having Red say, "We're." When she's asked, "What are you people?" And he says, "We're Americans." I mean, and even the opening text says, "In America, there are tunnels all over the place." It, it's. Right. I think it's very much directing it towards. The yeah, country specifically, right? Like I said earlier, there's a, a very a very clear denotation of American trauma of this being an inherently and explicitly American thing, and that's what Peel's going for. Even as far as the literal interpretation, I mean, it's implied that there was it's some government thing gone wrong. Like that's right. what it comes down to. Like <laughs> now, if if he were to attempt a sequel, I think it'd be really fun to see how other countries react to this. Uh, part of me feels like Europe would just be like, yeah, just blow up the country. We don't need them anyway. And that'll solve the problem. But well, so what's yeah. interesting? I mean, the film is putting out there that like it's a uniquely or at least basically American tendency to forget or turn a blind eye to or simply be ignorant about the deep suffering and oppression going on within your own communities, right? And so absolutely. 
Right, and so this is why I think the title is so significant, mm -hmm. because the notion of quote-unquote us needs to be understood in relation to its opposing concept, which is them. And so this is where the film is so is so very much about othering, and which we've used phrases like marginalization, dehumanization of other people. And so this is where I think this film is very much a follow-up to Get Out, because Get Out is not just pointing at like liberal white racism, but it's also about how racism is often intertwined with class privilege and how racism and oppression historically can be understood through the ways in which class privilege is or organized spatially whether it's through segregation or ghettoization and get out is like from the very first scene if i recall fundamentally about the precariousness that comes from a black person wandering through a white, yeah white spaces right it's all about black people in white spaces and us even though it's a very different film in some respects gives us that continuity with this concept by presenting the sort of spatial distinction of the above ground and the below ground segregation of what essentially appears to be a metaphor for class struggle that cuts across race even though it's inclusive of race it's it's part of what interests me about the, even going into it because it felt like it's not and i think peel even addresses it's not specifically going after racially based issues i mean it's there but like the movie's much broader than that and anyway, we've talked about that as far as a have or have not thing versus a you know specifically race versus another by the way the one of my favorite jokes in the movie directly kind of gets into that it's the it's when Winston, when they're all kind of in the house and they're and red's using the heideke and, 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 he's, and he says like heideke what kind of white shit is that and then they get in it's yeah okay let's call the cops i did they're 14 minutes away what 14 minutes Okay, 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 okay. Jason, give me the bat. What bat? The baseball bat, the bat. There's one in the corner. Here, here. Thank you. Gabe. All right, hold on. I got this. Let's try this again. Gabe. No, 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 no. All right. Gabe. I got this. I got this. Now, I thought I already done told y'all to get off my property, okay? So if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Now, the cops are already on their way. Um, I just wanted to backtrack briefly uh, to the music. Yeah. There's a, a track, track on the album, on the score album called Pas de Deux, which is basically a, a slowed down... Um, evocative version of the music from I Got Five on it, mm -hmm. um, which is used to underscore the scene where Red and Adelaide are fighting, but they're also fighting in a way that seems like they're dancing, and of course it's undercut with the flashbacks to actual dancing, dancing yeah. actual dancing of them as children, and, and that's just so such a brilliant use of that song, so evocative, and I think it's so interesting that it frames their final climactic struggle as a dance. And I think that speaks to the way we as people, when we're struggling with our own demons or we're fighting with ourselves, how it's almost a dance in our head, you know, whether it's like the typical trope of like the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other. I just think there's, there's so many little, little nuggets of thought put into this. And even if it doesn't all add up 100%, it's so sophisticated in its execution it just makes me happy to, to see something just swing for the fences and have all this for us to discuss. The rabbit imagery. I've been listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the rabbit. Oh. 
something. I, I mean, even if we were sort of net negative on this film, which which we clearly aren't, but I think sort of we would much prefer failed projects like us than sick box office successes in in the realm of like the nun uh-huh. days a week, right? Oh yeah, some something interesting that doesn't quite work is more exciting to me than something just is like yeah, it was average. Yeah, than product. Right. Although I'm ultimately not too clear on what the final position the film is taking. Like, is this a cautionary tale about being overwhelmed and overthrown by our societal sins? Or is it advocating for that revolution? I was left scratching my head a little bit there. I would be curious to hear kind of... I don't know how... I haven't read too many interviews, but it, it almost seems like he's very willing to let this movie much more... Yeah, I mean, a ton more, I think, than Get Out. You're kind of allowed to figure it, to go choose your own adventure as far as your interpretations go in some ways. Yeah, I don't think art needs to have answers or needs to take a side. I, and I think this film is almost clearly designed to allow the, the viewer to t- take away from it what they decide. Well, yeah, it's pretty, it's, yeah, it's, it's providing you... are the same or mm-hmm. going to draw the same conclusion. I mean, it's, it's, I mean for, that's for certain as far as like what interpretation you come away with but as far as i mean the level of ambiguity here is much more you know obvious it's more on the surface than something like get out is you know it's not it's not exactly framing kaluya's character as possibly in the wrong for what he's done <laughs> like you you come away thinking good thing you got out of that scenario like it's you're not right. and and the kind of the the things that led up to it are certainly like you know you understand what that is more i mean to the point of peel actually changed the ending of get out to be what it is so you can have a more satisfying experience where this film, yes, I mean, it's more happy to let you kind of sit in it and come away with it in the in a manner that's, I mean, you mentioned, actually, you mentioned Serling way earlier. I mean, yeah, it's there's, it's that kind of, here's a slice of this version of life, this this particular betrayal, betrayal of what's going on in here uh, and where you're coming out of the theater thinking, okay, like, there, right. there, there's a lot. It's, it's, okay. no, mere, it's no mere yeah. coincidence that, that Peel's next project is The Twilight Zone. Uh-huh. Like, I could very easily see this being a feature-length R-rated Twilight Zone episode, which is not at all meant to be disparaging. I think Twilight Zone is one of the greatest, you know, works of art of, of our time. Um you know, barring the fact that some episodes are better than others, but, you know, yeah, there's one, in that frame. There's one detail in that respect, uh, and the film's uh, opacity and its ambiguities, which which uh, could be sort of puzzling for some, but also this simultaneously what's particularly rewarding about this film because it's so worthy of debate, and it's definitely worthy of debate. But one uh, detail that struck me as very Twilight Zoney is how it leaves open the possibility, right, that that this is all part of um, a government experiment, right? That, mm-hmm. that that the doppelgangers were created by some un, unnamed force as a means to control us. So, in addition to the hint of sci-fi that's in there, Get Out has a bit of that as well. Um, it, it's interesting, and because it. it raises this question of the extent to which we're meant to view ourselves as complicit in this crisis, or if there are unseen levers of power um, that maybe makes us not fully responsible for what, what's happening, because if that's the case, then we're basically all just trapped in the Matrix, right? The 20-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that there's an interesting open-ended question as to what our response, and in particular what our moral response is supposed to be. Um, 
toward the ideas being put forth by the film. Well, I mean, if Hands Across America worked back in the day, we wouldn't have this movie, right? So that appears. To be <laughs> If if it ended, you know, what was it? Poverty and like and uh, homelessness. Like if it just solved the problem by raising all the money. References definitely didn't age very well. <laughs> Mike, that, that shirt, that shirt either. <laughs> Mike, do do you like that this film and climax both start with a a kind of television set explaining something and having on the sides of it various videos and books that give you a hint of what the director's main influences were? I, I made that association immediately. <laughs> all the better for it. Although, although I know that yeah, prominently uh, Chud and Goonies. Mm-hmm. Sort of, what, what do you call it? An orgy of evidence that this takes place in the mid-80s. <laughs> How about that? We didn't... We didn't... We didn't t- yeah the right stuff. We didn't talk about the um the opening by the way the cold open of this movie, which I think is really well done. Like I think it's 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 a nice like little self-contained piece of work there. Obviously, it has implications for the rest of the film, but I really like the setup. I I, I like this kind of the framing is great. I mean, there's something about the slope. There's a, I mean throughout this one, there's a lot of slow push-ins on. Th- I mean, there's from a technical standpoint, this movie's excellent. I think I think there's so much great work. Go- it's such a and I think it's clear his filmmaking craft and shot selection is is, is matured from Get Out easily. And it was it was no slouch in Get Out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I mean, I'm sure revisiting this film, you'll see plenty of other little hints, connections, both other things that represent doppelgangers or what have you that are just scattered throughout. You know, giant Easter. I mean, there's a lot. Of, I mean, we can talk about all the references in the movie, but we don't need to get into that. But I mean, The Shining was one of the huge ones for me. Especially, there's a shot where like they come up the stairs and you see the dead two girls sitting there it's like yeah that's right that's right there um but no, the, i i just want to mention saying mm-hmm. yeah upon it would be really rewarding upon second or third viewing not only because of all the easter eggs presumably mm-hmm. but also because of all the easter bunnies right Ex- yeah exactly <laughs> Nailed it. but there's <laughs> there's just there's a lot going on that, that i think really works uh, from a visual standpoint as far as what how why why to me it felt so unnerving because of how precise everything seems to be and when you start with that 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 opening music with those those slowly pulling away from and seeing all the rabbits in the cages Mm -hmm. i was already deeply unsettled and i used to have a pet rabbit and they're pretty cute and so you made rabbits scary for me that's good for you that that's an accomplishment well even like it's been a banner few months for rabbits with uh the favorite i've i've talked I've talked a lot about like font and font sizes in opening credits these days, and mainly since Batman v Superman, where it had like this artsy like title in the bottom right corner, and it's like ever since then I like movies that are just like here's the title square front and center in the movie, giant red letters, and that's what this one does. So I'm like, yeah, we're on the right track already. It's pronouncing what it is uh, when it you know comes to something that it feels like it has a scope that it wants to cover, as opposed to like trying to hide it practically. Um, any other thoughts on us before we kind of wrap up and start moving on here? I feel like they didn't make proper use of the um, very unsettling imagery of scissors. Okay. Because they essentially function like knives, and there isn't a lot of like snip-snip going on, which could be really unsettling. I don't know. I mean, if you really were Americans, I feel like you'd get a hold of some guns. Um, but uh, in terms of, um, in addition to the general absurdity, this is what I mean by... Um, Jordan Peele being kind of playful and, and knowing that he is. The, the, the idea that this entire group, race, uh, segment of underground people 
decide, hey, the time has come for us to start a revolution and take over the world. Does everyone have their scissors? You know, there's something just like <laughs> strangely absurd about the whole thing that left me disappointed because I wanted to see like people getting stabbed with scissors, not uh, you know scissors that could have just been knives essentially. But yeah, it was fairly. It was definitely a horror movie. I mean, there were obviously some good deaths, but it still veered away. I mean, it even had quite a few like from the perspective of the person dying, so you didn't even get to see the impact kind of uh, death. I, I, I will say that, yeah, I mean, we do see the scissors used in some instances, not specifically as, I mean, well, I guess there's one with, with Red using them as scissors, but I mean, and Anna's pointing this out to me as well, there is an implicit danger with scissors, I mean, and, and as she pointed out just now, kids, you know, you tell kids not to run with scissors. Like, there's the, the idea of scissors being a weapon, you get that imagery of that is I mean, the poster itself was like this just seems dangerous to me golden shears I am not I'm alarmed by what this could mean like that 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 seems scary to me but even then there's also the, the duality of scissors the, you know they're two blades attached together to each other I mean there it's there's a lot there <laughs> it's I and there's some there's some sound design as like red keeps putting them up and being like what if I cut something like there's again I think it's more compared to like a chainsaw where it's like if you bring a chainsaw into a movie you're probably gonna use that chainsaw scissors I think just the the danger that comes from seeing them or knowing that they're around to right. be because it's mundane that they're scary. And yeah they're like a household tool or weapon you know it's essentially med- or medical yeah scissors yeah I, I would also everyone has a pair of scissors in their you know their drawer. Yep, I, w- I would also add as far as the absurdity goes of like everyone having their red jumpsuits and scissors, re- golden scissors ready to go. I I I like a, I yeah, it is fun. I like a lot of that. I like that there's you know the the way that the tethered have been kept underground is an escalator. Like there's no, there's like it makes no sense, but it's just like there's an escalator that's going down, which is implicit. Which has plenty of impl- impl- things implied it's in itself, as far as descending into the underworld or what have you. But I like that that it's just such like a sledgehammer way of telling you this is how this works. There's an escalator that goes down. Like that's that's ridiculous. That's like having a giant hole that you put a plug in and that stops the world from blowing up. You know, it's things like that. Like there, it's 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 fun to me. <laughs> Anybody bother to look up Jeremiah eleven eleven? Oh, I've seen it plenty of times between reviews and just looking it up. Yes. Uh, what is it? Uh, right here. It's, uh, therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they cry, they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. I mean, it's a, it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's ominous, to say the least. But I've heard the eleven eleven thing before this movie. I've been very well aware of that being this kind of weird phenomenon where people see that all over the place and can either go crazy or just imply a certain dread. a lot. Like, I can't tell you... How often I'll look at the clock at night and it's eleven eleven. Yeah, it's a it's a number that has a lot. There's like I guess like probably numerologists probably go well into the meanings behind it or what have you. In the same way that like that's Joel Schumacher, but with the number twenty three became like a huge like right. thing. I mean, there's you can do that with a lot of numbers, but yeah, I know eleven eleven's always been one that's had its own sense of meaning to it, and this movie certainly plays off of that among the other things it tries to play with. And we haven't even talked we haven't even talked about kind of the biblical implications that this movie could have, but I I don't think they're not there. Just I'm not one to delve into it. Movie a couple years ago called like eleven eleven eleven. Probably, I <laughs> would be surprised. If we've run the gamut on horror titles, I'm sure that's been that's come up at some point. <laughs> It probably stars. It probably stars like Eric Roberts or something too. Like you know, <laughs> I, if if it stars Eric Roberts, that's a hundred points for me. Um, any other thoughts? One, yeah, one last question. Yeah. 
Am I the only one? Whenever the red, that whenever red is speaking in that tortured voice, uh huh. Am, am I the only one who kept thinking of the goobacks from South Park? <laughs> Anyone remember? <laughs> I love South Park, and I am not finding that reference in the back of my head. Yeah, Darn it. Even I, the people that, from the future. That is that is one of my favorite episodes, which I've only seen like once, I think, and that's how well it stuck with me. But like, yeah, that's it didn't come to mind watching the movie. But yeah, I'm oh, certainly mind immediately. Chicken sandwich. <laughs> My my thought on because I I was just more impressed that this is like a voice that you have to use and it's so like scary to me like as far as how you're using this performance right especially because there's even as you learn more about the tethered and how they you know they don't speak essentially and you think about what the what's gone on in her life leading up to this moment where she can barely speak anymore and which I guess comes from just all the pain and suffering that's come from being in this world eating only raw rabbit and what like i think that first monologue she gives is terrifying as far as everything she says about how she how adeline made her or had her family versus how you know the underside of things is much worse i mean like she talks about having a breech birth above which means she had to cut herself open in the bottom it's like that's terrifying like there's there's some horrible ideas that are being presented so yeah, leading up to that, you know, big speech and the voice and everything. <laughs> the, the voice also it, it works thematically because it's about a, a group of people down below who have been denied the fundamental sort of uh-huh. tools of self-expression. And... One of which is voice, of course, right? And the fact that it, it's so it's such an expression of how tortured she is to even be able to belt it out in that way is interesting. But what I really value is also it reminds me of I know there was like a debate on the set of Blue Velvet when Dennis Hopper is like huffing his his uh he's got his canister yeah yeah and he he turns into this sort of sexual menace um uh from what I understand they debated as to whether or not to give him helium basically and have his voice sort of go up a few registers and they decided against it because they felt it sounded too goofy and so Dennis Hopper just kind of puts on a slightly different cadence when he becomes the, the the other character, and I always felt like no, actually, I think having Dennis Hopper with a helium voice would actually be super duper creepy, right? I think that. Could... Well, yes, because it's because it's Dennis Hopper. I mean, it's Dennis Hopper. In this case, I'm really glad that it, it really maybe they've done some ADR manipulation, but it really does feel as though Lupita Nyong'o is putting out this voice. Mm-hmm. And, she uh, right? in there's interviews, no sense she talked about kind of she she did. Re- there's actually. Uh, a certain affliction that people have that she studied uh, that like makes their voice that way, and she she like even said she was so committed that they were worried that she might screw up her own vocal cords. Yeah, it's 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 really good, and like you said, really creepy. That's I think that's the creepiest scene in the movie when you first hear her speak. Uh-huh. Just something that just really focuses up in the film about just all the the, the kind of uncanniness of it all. My sec- she does such a good job. I think you, the, you're kind of forced to look at her Adelaide performance after the movie anew again as well. Mm-hmm. Things that you thought were weird, you're like, oh wow, that was just really a really good choice. <laughs> my that 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 uh, that main sequence where they first confront him. My second favorite funny joke is when um, Winston Duke tries to say you can have the boat, and then the daughter says, no one wants the boat, Dad. But, um, um, all right, I think we've talked sufficiently about us. A lot of good points being made. Uh, but so the last thing we do before we kind of move on, when should people go and see this movie? I think we all are very positive on it, but I'll ask anyway, Mike, when should people see this movie? Go see this movie. Do it. Do it now. Maxwell? 
Yeah, go see it now if you haven't already. Although, based on the box office, it seems like a lot of you already did. $70 million this weekend, which is quite high. Very impressive. John? No, uh, I'd say, yeah, go see this in theaters. We need to... Yeah, I mean, everybody is, but we need to definitely support unique stories, not stupid IP. <laughs> yeah, I uh, would agree. It's a movie that you go seek out in theaters right away. It's it's very strong, especially for, I think, horror fans and those that are kind of expecting a little something else to go with it. But yeah, and, and also you can go to it. I mean, it's it's it it probably is a little like more traditionally horror but i think non-horror fans shouldn't be too scared of it no i would agree i would say the same about get out as far as there's enough in the rhythm of the film that kind of keeps you having a having a fun time watching this unfold in addition to just kind of having some unnerving moments i guess there are a few you might have to turn away even then it's kind of restrained as far as how much bloodshed there is in this movie i mean there's there's a lot there's off screen yeah, there's some cutaways that are, I think, are effective in the moment. Not unlike a Nolan film, honestly, which where he does that a lot as far as kind of gets you up to a point and then cuts away from it. All right. Well, with that all said, I think that's a, we've, done, we've done our job there. Let's move on now. Let's get to um, what time is? It? Let's get to let's get to some games. Uh, so as you know, Abe is not here, but he did send me the game that he prepared for this week's uh, this week's episode. Um, he has not titled. Oh wait, no, he did. He did title it. It's called "Getting to Know You: Us Edition," a trivia about actors and the director. Um, so what I have here is a series of questions um, that are all related to the cast and Peel. And if you think you know the answer, uh, say your name and uh, what you think the answer is. Got it? Makes sense. So our buzzer is our name. Your buzzer is your name. Yes. Got it. All right. Here's the first question. Jordan Peele has been nominated for four Academy Awards and won one. Can you name the movies he's been nominated for? Maxwell. Maxwell? Get Out and Black Panther. What are the four movies? Oh, I see. What are the names of the movies? Yeah, yeah. Get Out and Black Panther. Yes, he was a producer on Black Panther. I see what Abe did here. I'm reading his question, so i got to make sure I get it. Well, three, three of his nominations were for... Three for Get Out and one is for Black Panther. Yeah. producing Black Panther. Yeah, you got that. Point for Maxwell. Here's the next one. It's multiple choice. Elizabeth Moss has been nominated for many times for an Emmy in this category, in the category of lead actress in a drama series. Uh, it's multiple choice: A five, B seven, C nine, or D eleven. Jonathan. John. So this is just Emmys. Yes. Okay, uh, I'm gonna say five. Incorrect. No. Max. Maxwell. Seven. Incorrect. <laughs> uh, Mike, whatever's left. We got a 9 and an 11 on the board. Uh, Joe? What'd you say? 9? Nine? 9 is correct. No. Thanks, fellas. And she won in 2017 for The Handmaid's Tale. Let's see, next question. Which Ivy League university did Winston Duke attend to receive his MFA? Mike? Mike? Is it Howard? It's not Howard. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan? John? Show me Yale. It is Yale. Correct. So, so did Lupita. Here's the next one. Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke share screen time in Black Panther. Which tribe did Winston Duke lead? I remember they're vegetarian. Yep, that's, that's true. I remember, I remember his character's name. I'm trying to remember the tribe. Yeah. Uh, I've seen that movie so many times. Also, oh my god. So my excuse is I've only seen it once. It's it's not the Water Tribe. Well, I mean, can we just say the mountain? People? It's it's what? not the border tribe. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It is the Jab- called the Mountain Tribe. It, no, it's the Jabari Tribe. That's what, that's the oh, name. Oh yes. Yeah. yes. Here's the next one. Tim Heidecker, who plays Josh, is also has a credit in the MCU, a film set in San Francisco about a thief who can shrink into small paces, space faces, and it co-stars Michelle Pfeiffer. Son of a yeah. Damn it. Incorrect. Wait, what? Well, so Mike is that uh, another uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp? That is, that's the movie. Yes, that's the title of the film. <laughs> I'm really just building off of you guys' failure. <laughs> I just know I have to ring in fast, or you guys will beat me. <laughs> Here's the next one. Jordan Peele and Tim Heidecker have voiced multiple characters for this animated Fox Sunday show about a family who lives in the fast food re- about their fast food restaurants. <laughs> okay. Maxwell. Yep. Maxwell. Wait. What? I heard Maxwell first. Bob's Burgers. Bob's Burgers is correct. Okay. The tape's going to show I won that one. The tape will show that I heard you first, or Maxwell first. <laughs> Here's the next question. Anne Diop, who plays Rain, the uh, Nyong'o's mother in the movie, has a credited role in a Netflix film called Message from the King, which stars this MCU actor. That Jonathan? Yeah. No, man, this might look like bad. I, I, I resent mine. <laughs> <laughs> There's a second clue. This actor is the lead in the highest grossing Marvel movie domestically. Mike? Mike? Is it... Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman? That is correct, yes. Uh, I'm glad I didn't answer. I knew I was going to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, like, had it. I should have just guessed it. That was my guess. Oh, well. Here's the next one. Before Yahya Abdul-Mateen broke through as Black Manta and Aquaman, he had a small role with his Us co-star, Elizabeth Moss, in this TV series. Maxwell. Maxwell? Handmaid's Tale. It is The Handmaid's Tale. Here, two more. And I'm just here for the top of the lake question. <laughs> <laughs> two more Lupita Nyong'o voiced and did motion capture for her character in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi what is the name of her character Mike Mike damn it <laughs> I don't think that's right sorry my my headphones keep dropping out so I couldn't hear but it's Maz Katana that, I think someone else said it uh, no I, I was good it's yours that is correct here's the last question as an actor what is Jordan Peele's highest grossing movie Maxwell. Maxwell? Huh? Keanu? Incorrect. Mm, I would have been like a film. Uh, what has he been in? It's not like he has some unseen cameo in Get Out or anything like that, is it? Uh, I will. The hint is it's an animated film. Oh. Is it Wreck-It Rob? Incorrect. At this point, I'll be surprised if you get it. It is Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Well, the scores are in. Jonathan, you are in last place. Mike, you gave in second place. And Maxwell, you are a winner this week. Whoop, whoop. What do I get? Respect. Uh, I have enough of that already. Okay. I needed I needed the respect more, damn it. I will happily give you half of my respect. I don't, I don't want your pity respect. <laughs> Someday, Aaron. Someday. Well, that was the game. That was getting to know you, us edition. Let's uh let's move on now. Let's get to now feedback. 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 <laughs> this is where we go over the various questions and answer on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash out now podcast. Uh, we asked a number of questions to our listeners, they gave us answers, then we they gave us questions that we can answer. But first, let me get to our polls. Polls because there's one that I forgot to do address two weeks ago, meant to address last week, forgot again, and now I'll finally get into it this week. Um, we had two questions. 
so uh, with our polls, we always put two movies against each other. We ask the listeners to vote for the one to save, and the other gets erased from existence entirely. Um, so two weeks ago, uh, in honor of the kind of 90s buddy theme and Sam Jackson of it all, uh, we put The Long Kiss Goodnight against The Last Boy Scout. Where would you guys go between those two films? Long Kiss Goodnight. Same. Wait, so that is a tough choice, but I would stick with Long Kiss Goodnight, which means... Last Boy Scout gets erased from memory? From from existence entirely, yes. Existence, all right, then. Yeah, Last Boy Scout. Sorry, no. Longest Goodnight. They're both, go. both, should both Shane Black films, or, or scripted films, anyway. Oh, man, I, I have to abstain. I don't think I've seen either one. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go with um, Longest Goodnight because I'm rooting for a Gene Davis comeback more than a uh, Sean Wayans comeback. Damon Wayans. Um <laughs> I would go. It's tough because I I think I like Tony Scott more than I like um, Randy Harlan, but I do think there's a, I think Sam Jack I think they're both a lot of fun in that movie. Um, regardless, the poll came out to fifty one. It was close, fifty one percent to forty nine percent. Long Kiss Goodnight wins, um, putting Last Boy Scout out of here. Um, so the poll for this week was a doubles edi- Hollywood doubles edition, and we have adaptation versus Bowfinger. Between those films, where would you go? We have a Spike Jones joint versus uh, Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy in a Frank a Frank Oz picture. It's I like that there's hesitation because you would think like the avant garde adaptation might easily win this compared to Bowfinger, but I think Bowfinger is quite clever. I think they're they're both pretty good films. Adaptation is more unique. It is more difficult than one might expect. Uh huh. Wait, Charlie, Sorry, I. I just the first movie. What was the first movie against Bowfinger? Adaptation. It literally is that. Oh, that's easy for me. You know, that's easy for me. It's adaptation. Yeah, I know you're a big Charlie Kaufman guy. <laughs> I mean, Charlie Charlie Kaufman's a brilliant screenwriter, and that film is exceptionally clever with great performances. Yeah, it's his like most fun movie. Bowfinger is like maybe the last great Eddie Murphy movie, and Steve Martin's a joy in it, and Chubby Rain and. <laughs> Mike, you have a weigh in on this? Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna keep adaptation just because I feel like it has more utility for me, like moving forward and in a classroom, things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go with Bowfinger. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm at adaptation, I guess, but it's very, it is very close to my mind. I was, I was, I was surprised that myself. I was like, wait, I don't know which I would choose initially when I put this up there. That said, adaptation. Huh? Yeah. It's hard. Then yeah, it's hard. That said, adaptation did lose out to Bowfinger, thirty six percent to sixty four percent, which I was I was a little surprised by because I like neither of them were huge hits, and one might register more as far as a as, as kind of a I don't know like an an art house film that you'd figure. But regardless, Bowfinger won this one. Chubby Rain, Chubby Rain lives. Sense that like Charlie Kaufman's kind of fading as far as a full moviography. Yeah, but when was the last part of time you heard anyone talk about Bowfinger? <laughs> <laughs> People are still like, Eddie Murphy! <laughs> well, that's where our polls were this week. Now let's get to our questions. Got all these questions here. Here's a simple one. Favorite films about evil twins, do- doubles, or doppelgangers? And feel free to jump in if you have any answers as well. Uh, Philip writes Kagamusha. Alan has Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Jason has Raising Cain. Chris has Evil Dead, Bad Ash. So I guess Army of Darkness. Uh, Todd has Basket Case. Tyler has Muppets Most Wanted, and and Jeffrey has Twins. Either favorite. I'm a big fan of Enemy, uh, the villain wave uh, film. I think it's terrific with Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm gonna go Lost Highway. Uh huh. Any others, my band? 
I have nothing to add. Right. Yeah, I'm coming up empty. Okay. Next question. What are your favorite home invasion style movies? Philip writes Panic Room. Mike has Mother's Day. Alan has What About Bob and Scream. Justin has Arachnophobia. Scott has Frogs. Todd has The Ref. Tyler has Don't Breathe or Hush. Jerry has Hostage. Chris has Mother, Strain- The Strangers, and The Clockwork Orange. And Jim Dietz, friend of the show, has Funny Games, The Ref, and One False Move. Well, I have to funny games earlier, so I'll, I'll just stick with that. I'll double down on funny games. Funny games is certainly the most upsetting home invasion movie that I've watched. <laughs> I would ask uh, your next. Yeah. Which I like. I mean, we could practically count Scream. <laughs> yeah, well, Scream was mentioned. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I didn't say this earlier, but I thought, I don't know. I For me, I'm curious whether, like, Scream was my entry into horror. <laughs> Because I did, could not handle horror as a kid. Uh-huh. I'm kind of curious whether Jordan Peele's movies are going to be kind of that, like, easier to handle horror entry film for an, another generation. I think it's, I mean, it's the mainstreamness of it that helps. I mean, that and, the, mm-hmm. that and like, the conjuring pictures at this point, I would say. But we're also living in the age of PG-13 horror, and these are rated R, so I'm sure there's some other, like, Blumhouse... PG-13 ghost movies at all. I mean, we're, we're, we're living in an age where genre has become mainstream. I mean, that's what it helps, right. really, too. For sure. Next question. What's your favorite horror villain weapon? In reference to the iconic scissors that we referenced earlier. <laughs> but, um, Philip writes, uh, if by favorite you mean most horrific use, the bone tomahawk. Tyler writes, the chainsaw has surprised, surpassed its practical use and has become even more recognizable as a weapon of choice for some of cinema's greatest horror villains. That being said, I still love the pogo stick killing the leprechaun so much. Uh, John, you wrote the phone. <laughs> With a winky emoji, right? <laughs> yep, you did. Uh, Justin writes, I have always liked Freddy's glove. Chris has, I was going to say, bone tomahawk, so it has to be the bolt uh, gun in No Country. Uh, let's see. Renee has I'll go with the classic kitchen knives from Psycho and Halloween. Alan writes vampire fangs. Uh, Mike has Jason's machete. And Stephen writes the sentinel sphere from Phantasm. Iconic horror villain weapons. Mm. The chainsaw does stick out to me, I will say. I mean, it, it, it's such a, I, I, don't, I don't tend to think of a chainsaw as something used for cutting wood anymore. I'm going to go with bare hands. But, yeah. Bare hands is in your bare hands and not the hands of an animal. Hands of an animal. <laughs> I like I, that's better. That's more a horror movie. Bare hands. Yeah. Like I don't know, like the edge. He cut off some hands. Well, I mean, listen, us, us is an allegory about America, and we have the right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. Are you talking specifically about Devin Sawa's hands? Bare hands. Bare hands. His idle hands. There you go. We're down the rabbit hole now. I, th- I was thinking, isn't there a Devin Sawa movie where like they have like a bear or something? Or like Wild America? Isn't that a movie? My favorite horror, iconic horror movie weapon is a truck carrying lumber. Okay. So fi- Final Destination 2? Exactly. The sequel to a Devin Sawa movie? Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Less about Devin Sawa. Next question. Favorite film about creepy children? Was Devin Sawa young in a movie? Where he's, where he's, um, Justin writes The Exorcist and The Shining. Stephen has The Omen, Case 39, Village of the Damned, and The Good the Good Son and The Ring. Chris has Let the Right One In and The Orphanage. Philip has Never Let Me Go. Tyler has Orphan and Pet Cemetery. Todd has The Exorcist, The Shining, The Omen, and of course The Bloodening, now playing at the Springfield Drive-In. <laughs> How about The Sixth Sense? Yeah, there's some creepy kids there. Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. Was he was he Oscar nominated? That kid. 
know. I believe he. I think he was. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. Possible? We need to look this up while Jonathan gives us his answer for his favorite creepy kid. Oh, I mean, I, I, I could only reach it if a shining. <laughs> those are those are some, some creepy kids. Justin Henry, best actor in a supporting role, nominated at age eight years, ten months, and twenty days. He is to date the youngest nominee for any competitive honor in an Academy Award history. Wow. Well, how about that? Yep. There you go. Next question here. Last question. What are some films about evil families that you enjoy? Alan has The Godfather. Philip has Throne of Blood. Justin has Get Out. Tyler has Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Todd has Spider Baby. Rachel has I Like Coraline. Chris has Devil's Rejects. Mike has House of a Thousand Corpses. Devil's Rejects. The Hills Have Eyes. It's Wrong Turn and I Spit on Your Grave. Eric has Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills Have Eyes. Evil Families. Texas Chainsaw Massacre does come up quite a bit here and I think that's a good example. Devil's Rejects is a good choice, too. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think Psycho would count. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of focus on one person who's occupying some spaces, but sure. I mean, I guess Mother had kind of that vibe. The sink is not braced yet. <laughs> <laughs> and Home Invasion, for that matter. All right. Well, that's good. So we have one question. Uh, this one comes from Philip. I found a lot of short films on Vimeo, YouTube, Canopy, Amazon Prime, PBS, and the Criterion Channel. Well, we'll also have a bunch. Are there any good places, any other good places to stream shorts besides those? I mean, it feels like you've named a lot of good places to stream short films. Shorts TV. Anna, Anna's saying Shorts TV, which yeah, that's the it's the company that helps. Yeah, it's it's a channel devoted to shorts, but it helps like bring about all the recognition for a lot of short films that lead on to like Oscars and have a, let alone have the records for all of them. Anirose, she's like uh, Sun Sundance. If you go through Sundance that way, sometimes the IFC channel also has some interesting stuff. I mentioned my only hope has been living next to LA's new art theater. <laughs> so yeah, there's. I mean, again, you've named a lot out there, but yeah, the Shorts TV channel. Yes, that's a prime place to find it because it's devoted to shorts entirely. Uh, all right, those are questions. Let's uh, let's start wrapping things up here. Let's move on to Out Now, which is what presents Out Now. These are movies that are coming out on streaming, Blu-ray, DVD, all kinds of stuff this week. Uh, first up on Blu-ray and 4K and all that this week, we have Aquaman. Feel free to give a yay or an A to any of these, but I think Aquaman is <laughs> it's kind of gonzo, but uh, enjoyable. Uh, if Beale Street could talk... Yay! But, uh, yay! Was that your favorite of last year, Maxwell? It was. Yeah, certainly on my top ten. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a medium yay on that. I enjoyed it. It's very beautiful. <laughs> um, let's see. Stan and Ollie, which was, that was a, a nice film. It was, uh, let's see. Second Act. was the Lopez one. Yes, the Lopez one. Uh, uh, Capernaum, which was up for a Best Foreign Film Oscar. Uh, let's see. Columbus. It's, but both, sorry. Columbus and Can You Ever Forgive Me are both on Blu-ray this week for the first time. <laughs> oh, I love Can You Ever Forgive Me. Yeah, and, and it got it seemed like it wasn't coming out on Blu-ray because it's weird for the Blu-ray to come out later than the DVD. But yeah, that was uh, I don't know why that happened, but that's for whatever reason the Blu-ray was delayed and now it's coming out. And yeah, Columbus was like a big like critical hit from a couple years back, and it's getting its first home release at all. So with uh, Haley Lou Richardson and uh, and um, John Cho. John Cho, yeah, it's like Justin, no, John Cho. It's pronounced Capernaum. Uh, I've never actually had to pronounce it before. So, 
I feel like I really like that film. I feel like I've been saying it all wrong. I, I've never said it out loud, I think. I've just read it. That's what I've been saying. Okay. okay. I was saying Capernaum also. Capernaum, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, and also, let's see, Life After Flash, which I believe is a documentary about um, the Flash uh, the Flash Gordon movie from the 80s. Uh, let's see. Uh, on TV, you have Midnight Texas Season 2. I guess there's a Season 2 of Midnight Texas. Um, uh, specialty releases, you have uh, Dario Argento's Opera coming out from Scorpion releasing. Uh, Perfect Blue and the Street Fighter Collection with Shunny Chiba coming out from Shout Factory this week. Uh, Pet Cemetery's 30th Anniversary Edition Blu-rays out this week. And let's see, for a few dollars more and many of the road movies with uh, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, Road to Baracco, Utopia, Singapore, Zanzibar, those are all on Kino. And uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, I believe is Zemeckis' first movie. That's on Criterion this week. New to streaming on Netflix, you have The OA Season 2. And uh, The Dirt, which is the Motley Crue biopic, which I'm sure is probably terrible. Um, and on Prime, you have Cold War, which was one of my favorite films of last year, uh, for certain. Uh, so yeah, that's all streaming. Uh, let's see, next week's show, next week we'll be talking about Dumbo, the flying elephant. And uh, last thing we do here, what should people go and see now, and what do you plan to see next? Let's start with uh, Maxwell, what should people see in theaters right now? I mean, it's been a bit of a slow start for me this year, so not to be repetitive, but go see us. Um, next, I think I'm going to see The Mustang. All right. John? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm personally going to try to see Mary Poppins soon. <laughs> uh, hey, it's really good. I, would, I, I was a fan of Mary Poppins. I would have to red box it. Uh, I just I didn't get to it in the theaters. Um but yeah, as far as in theaters, I think it's just us, man. Like, it's been a pretty rough year for movies of interest. My next movie I'm going to see is probably Avengers. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything in between. Uh, Shazam. Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. But, uh, but yeah, I, I wish I was a little more hyped. Uh, moving in, but, but hopefully there'll be some surprises. Mike, how are you? I am uh, wanting to see Dragged Across Concrete. I actually, I wanted to see it in time for today so I could talk about it, but I didn't have uh-huh. time. Um, I think this director is one of the really interesting guys out there just doing basically pure grindhouse. Um, and, uh, I'm, and I'm hearing good things about this next one. So I know there's always going to be some public reservations about any film featuring Mel Gibson at this point, but yeah, that was insane. That the one with Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. Yeah, I think from an artistic standpoint, I think there's there there remain to be interesting ways of using Mel Gibson in a movie. Um, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, because because of the kind of baggage he brings to a project, I'm not saying it's going to sort of make automatically for compelling casting. But I think um, based on what I hear and the stuff I've liked about this director with previous films, uh, I'm going to check it out. And, I hope it's good. Uh, did he do... Um, he did uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 and the Bone Tomahawk. Yeah, that one. Yeah, Bone Tomahawk. Excellent horror weapon. Well, yeah, uh, I would say Us. Um, certainly recommend that. There's an Apollo 11. is um, just a really good documentary. And um, yeah, Fighting with a Family is still out there. I think it's a, quite a, you know, a good movie. Uh, yeah, I like that movie a lot. Yeah. I'm surprised how much I enjoyed it. And Dumbo is next. Uh, all right. With all that said, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Out Now, There and Today. You can find more of my personal work at my personal blog, thecodeofzeke.com. All my written movie reviews end up over there. I'm also writing about The Walking Dead, among other things, at We Live Entertainment. 
on my Blu-ray review. I've been doing some Criterion stuff over at Wise of the Blue. And I'm also on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Uh, let's go down the line. Maxwell Hadid, where can people find more of you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Cinemaxwell. Go check out Be More Chill or Hades Town on Broadway, both of which I'm involved with. Cool. Uh, Jonathan Van Dyke, where can people find more of you? Uh, I mean, <laughs> they want a very random Twitter experience. I'm at, at Sir John Van Dyke, and, and that's probably just about it. Mike, anything you want to plug? No, as always, I'm nowhere to be found, so I'm just going to send a shout-out to Abe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. I hope, Abe, I hope Abe listens all the way through and, and, and is, is delighted for that. And at the very end, he'll think that was worth it. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell him there's a treat at the end. Uh, but yeah, in no special order, thank you to Mike, Jonathan, and Maxwell for joining me today to discuss us. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to do it for this week's episode. So until we see just how big those years get, that's going to do it. So until next time, so long and goodbye. Creep on in, on in, on in. some of the trailer for us. When Mike Lupita's like, look, Aaron! Uh, I can't do it. That was a good one word. That was, (laughs) you started well. (laughs) It wasn't bad. She did like a lot of vocal training for it.